thought I did. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Should I start over? Okay. So Ephesians' most notable answer is, let me go back to the, the big why of the Bible. Why were we, of all people, chosen by God? And why would God send what is most precious to Him to die for us, a bunch of wretched sinners in rebellion to God, who were shaking our collective fists at God? But listen to what Martin Luther Jones said, quoting Luther. He said, Luther says of the epistle to the Romans that it is the most important document in the New Testament, the gospel in its purest expression. And this is back to Lloyd-Jones. He says, in many ways, I agree that there is no purer, plainer statement of the gospel than the epistle to the Romans. Accepting that is true, I would venture to add that if the epistle to the Romans is the purest expression of the gospel, the epistle to the Ephesians is the sublimest and most majestic expression of it. Now, despite the depth of theology and the serious implications of the many critical doctrines, such as the doctrine of election, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of predestination, and the doctrine of adoption, and many others, the epistle, you can tell the way Paul states it here, from his heart is expressed in worship and praise. It is true that Ephesians, as James Montgomery Boyce states, presents the basic doctrines of Christianity comprehensively, clearly, practically, and winsomely. Yet we can tell by Paul's tone that it screams to the reader that this is good news. This is the best news to a weary soul. And remember, Paul is in chains here. He's confined. He has no freedom, yet he is free. He's free in Christ, and he can't contain his enthusiasm. In his vertical worship, Paul is a quintessential picture of hope, if there ever was one, telling his readers while in chains of the great things God has done for the glory of God alone. Now let's talk about Ephesus. And if Jerusalem was the religious center of the world, Ephesus was the beachhead of evangelism, world evangelism. It was the main entry point of the gospel to the world beyond ethnic Israel. Ephesus was the capital of proconsular Asia, and as such was the political and commercial center of the Roman Empire, second only to Rome itself. And it was here Paul came to preach briefly on his second missionary journey and then extensively on his third missionary journey. And it was in Ephesus, you remember, that Paul uncharacteristically settled in. You remember that he taught in the synagogues for two months, and then he taught in the Hall of Tyrannus for two years, turning not only Ephesus upside down with the gospel, but the whole region. So much so that in Acts 19, it says that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So effective was Paul, as Matt preached a few weeks back, when he took us through that dust up at the temple of Diana, that Paul almost single-handedly wiped out an entire industry. You remember that silver trade industry of trinkets and, and idols to Diana. So Paul's time in Ephesus was remarkable. It was really the high watermark of his entire missionary work. And from this strategic location, the gospel reach was extensive. With Paul using this letter to the Ephesians to not only just influence the church, the local church, but the church in general, as this was a circular letter that would travel to the saints at Colossae 
and then the saints at Laodicea. And like a pebble in a pond, Paul's teaching would radiate out, not with the Jesus loves you, this I know, Sunday school message, but with the full counsel of God, as we heard from Alex today. One commentator recorded as many as 27 distinct doctrines in these six chapters of Ephesians. And amazingly, they're wrapped in a magnificent combination of Christian teaching, Christian duty, Christian faith, and Christian life. And it's amazing that these rank pagans, Gentiles, scattered throughout Asia Minor, could grab a hold of these deep deep doctrines expounded in this epistle like nowhere else in the world. Here in Asia Minor, the church was blossoming. So to our first point, the divine messenger. This is verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, this was Paul's most common introduction, using his preferred title as apostle of Jesus Christ, which is the highest office in the church. And remember, these were the first messengers. That's what apostle means, messengers. These were the first ones sent out to form the foundation of the church. Revelation 21 states, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. There are no apostles today. This office was for a chosen group of men during the apostolic age that met met certain requirements. Christ has been building his church on this one foundation. And as his church continues, convert after convert, like building a building, you can see the unbiblical notion that the church needs to add additional foundations as the, of apostles as it grows. So, and, and also don't miss the ownership of Paul. Paul doesn't describe himself as an apostle of the church. He doesn't describe himself as an apostle of the way. He describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul is a slave to Christ. He knows Christ bought him with his precious blood. Christ owns him. His life and death are all tied up in Christ. And that's why Paul says in, in Philippians, to live as Christ and to die is gain. If your very life is wrapped up, hand and glove to Christ, there's a room for anything else. How about you, believers? Your life and death inextricably tied to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Does Christ own you? Are you his doulos? Are you his slave? Now notice it's not a coincidence that the requirements to be an apostle are all tied to Jesus Christ. The first apostles of the church received their commission directly from the lips of Jesus Christ. They saw with their own eyes the resurrected Jesus Christ. And they were taught directly by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And they were given power and authority to work miracles by Jesus Christ. Thus, there have been no new apostles since the commissioning of the apostle Paul. Our second point is by the divine decree. Since since, uh, we've seen so far, it's from the divine messenger. Next, it's by the divine decree. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, By the will of God, there is nothing more powerful and more sure in the universe than the will of God. There's nothing in his will that has not or will not come to pass. That is a comforting thought, isn't it? So Paul is an apostle, a slave of Jesus Christ, is also under submission to the will of God, the Father. Do you see the perfect unity 
of the Godhead. Paul knew his salvation was the will of God, that he was born again, just as John says in his gospel, when he said, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but were born of God. He also knew that his commission was by the will of God. Paul, you remember, was beaten in the temple and he was saved by the Roman cohort. And he stood on the stairs and he told the crowd that Ananias told him in Damascus, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will. And that the Lord said to him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then 1 Timothy, or Galatians 1 says, and when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim him as good news among the Gentiles. And then 1 Timothy says, I am grateful to Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he regarded me faithful, putting me into service. So this divine decree for the Apostle Paul was determined in eternity past. In the Godhead, it was predestined. And Paul knew he was created in Jesus Christ. He was his workmanship to walk in the good works that God had prepared beforehand for him to walk in. So on to point three, to the divine people. So we've seen from the divine messenger, by the divine decree, and next to the divine people. Verse one reads, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Every Christian is a saint, and every saint is a Christian. And this, of course, runs contrary to what the world believes, that only good people are saints. There's only one problem. There are no good people, as Romans 3 is very clear. There are none, not even one, not even the Catholic saints. And they've taken this sainthood thing to a comical level. They actually have a saint to lost stuff, like you lose your socks, you lose your keys, and you pray to this saint. But being a saint, a hagias, is being holy and set apart to belong to him, to belong to God. Just as a nation of Israel is set apart from all other nations round about to belong to him. And remember, God only called Israel a holy nation, and he only calls believers saints. Now, interestingly, in the early manuscripts, at Ephesus was not included, giving credence to this epistle being a circular letter. And further, to make this point, in the fourth chapter of Colossians, Paul may be referring to this very epistle when he states at the end of verse 16, and you, for your part, read my letter. That's coming from Laodicea. The best part of this divine people, these saints that are set apart to belong to God, is that they are described at the end of verse 1 as who are faithful in Christ Jesus. What a great commendation. What a great commendation to be recognized for your faithfulness. So being saints defined as vertically, as set apart for God. But the term believers defines us horizontally as being set apart from the world. So the saints at Ephesus are known for exercising their faith in Christ supernaturally united to him. And this is all summed up in those beautiful words, in Christ. That is positionally where all believers stand. This amazing reality of the believer being in Christ will be developed more next week, but it's noteworthy to notice that Paul can't even get out of the first verse 
without heralding this great truth. This being the first followed by nine more phrases of in Christ or in him just in the first 23 verses of this letter. Paul uses a version of the phrase in Christ 164 times in his writings. We must be reminded also again of Paul being a prisoner. He's not complaining here. He is praising God and praising his position before God that he is in Christ. Brother and sister, can you improve on that? Being in Christ is a great blessing of salvation. Now, our final point is where we'll spend the bulk of our time, and that is by the order of the divine Godhead. So we've seen for purposes of review, from the divine messenger, by the divine decree, to the divine people, and now grace and peace by order of the divine Godhead. I mean, this is quite an introduction. This is quite a salutation by the Apostle Paul. Verse 2 reads, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God. What a summation of our salvation. Grace is the source of our salvation. Grace is the active agent of our regeneration, the very fountainhead of new life. And what And that is what grace is. But what is the resulting blessing of that grace? Peace from God. Grace is the source of our salvation. Peace is the blessing of our salvation. Grace may be the most consequential and amazing feature in all of Scripture. The word cherish means favor bestowed. A generous favor freely given. In the New Testament, it refers to favor bestowed by God through his power to transform a person's life, starting at salvation and going on from there. Paul, without exception, I never knew this until I studied this, without exception, begins and ends all 13 of his letters by blessing his Christian readers with this grace of God. He bookends each letter with this focus on grace, beginning each letter with grace to you and ending with a form of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You remember well in the next chapter of Ephesians where Paul can hardly contain himself over the passion for this transforming grace. When he interrupts the text, he actually interrupts himself. He breaks into his own sentence and he proclaims this amazing grace. Listen, you guys know the verse well. It's in uh, Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then he breaks in, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now look at verse 5 again. The sentence works seamlessly without the interjection but is so much richer with it. By grace, you have been saved. Paul gets to made us alive together with Christ, speaking of our regeneration, and he can't help but add the source of our regeneration before he goes any further. I love that because it gives us a glimpse into the mind of Paul who is inspired by the Holy Spirit over his excitement over the grace of God. Now, this was so important to Paul that he would proclaim this phrase again Three verses later, as you guys know well, and he develops it more in verse 8, by grace you've been saved through faith. 
This not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So Paul was so excited about the grace of God. Why? I can't say it any better than John MacArthur. He said, grace is a dynamic force, a dynamic and benevolent power that applies the goodness of God and the resources of God to our lives to save us, to keep us, to enable us, to deliver us, to sanctify us, to glorify us. All of God's good favors to his children are given through the means of this beneficent goodness called grace. So grace is the source of our new life in Christ. The moment of our regeneration, all the way to our being with Christ in glory. But if this grace is the source of our salvation, what is the source of this grace? Well, John 1 tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received Grace upon grace. This grace from God is unmerited and it is eternal. It can't be bought with money and it can't be taken away with death. This is so important. Please don't miss this. This is the greatest gift ever given to a man. For it gives eternal life and it was made possible at the cross. God poured out his wrath on his son, raining down on him sin upon sin upon sin. Yet God poured out his favor on us, raining down on us grace upon grace upon grace. This is often called the scandal of grace. Why? Because it scandalizes every works righteousness system in existence because it's a gift of God. It cannot be earned. It cannot be earned as millions, if it can be earned as millions of so-called Christians believe, it's no longer grace. Romans 11 says, In this way then, at the present time, a remnant, according to God's gracious choice, has also come to be. But if it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. This is the essence of the gospel. This is the core difference between the true gospel and all other religions because only this gift of grace from God has the power to transform. We can't transform ourselves. We are dead in our sins. As it's been said, what can a dead man do? When you're dead in your sins, you're blinded to your own sin. But grace changes all that. The Puritan John Hart put it this way. Nature, te- nature may teach a man to loathe sin in others. But tis only grace that teaches us to abhor sin in ourselves. It was the power of this grace from God that opened John Newton's eyes 349 years ago when he wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet this sound, that saved a wretch like me. Brothers and sisters, this is critical. Do you see yourself as a wretch and loathe your own sin? And better yet, do you know of this grace that has saved you? If not, call out to him. Own your own sin, loathe your own sin, and plead for his grace. For Whoever, whosoever would call upon his name, he will not cast out, but he will give you grace upon grace. And praise the Lord, if this be the first time that someone ever came to hate their own sin, but realize this, every believer here 
has been hating our sin, own sin from the moment of our conversion. And not only that, we have been daily clinging to this life-giving grace of God ever since. For it not only saved us, but it daily sustains us. For without grace, we are spiritually dead, and we are hypocrites on the wide road to destruction. But thanks be to God, for by grace we have been saved. And that's why Paul is so excited about this grace in verse 2, proclaiming grace to you. And what is the glorious result of this grace? Peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, grace is the source of our salvation. Peace is the blessing of our salvation. You first must know the grace of God before you can ever experience the peace of God. Romans 5 records, Therefore, having justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, world peace is much talked about today with the war in Russia and in Ukraine from Russia, the saber-rattling from China and North Korea. And as prophecy indicates, this will increase in our time. But peace from military conflict, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Only with true peace from God can one proclaim as Paul, more than that I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so I may gain Christ. That's peace. Because the rebellion is over. The insurrection against God has been vanquished. Our mortal sins are forgiven. The wrath of God is appeased. Death has been defeated. There's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That is peace. That is divine peace pure peace, not with the world, but with God, who is our judge and jury. It is he who has thrown out the case against us. Why? Because a man has stepped forward and said to the judge, wait, I will pay in full for her crimes. I will pay in full for his sins. And just like that, we walk away justified, just like that tax collector. A walk he surely never forgot in peace for the first time in his life. So how do we know this just wasn't a common greeting of the day like, how are you, or como esta, or even shalom, which was and still is a Hebrew greeting, meaning peace to you. Well, we know not only by who this is addressed to, the saints, but more importantly, who is bestowing the peace and grace. On this side of the cross, grace and peace have new meanings, especially when it is divinely given to us from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul emphasizes God our Father, again establishing that the saints, the believers who are in Jesus Christ, have a heavenly Father. A Father prior to conversion they never knew. But after conversion, we all not only know Him, but we as believers share Him as our Father. And there is only one Father, and it is only the saints, the believers, who have been given the right to be called his children, to be called the children of God. So grace comes from God. Peace from comes from God. Here our salvation comes from God alone, our Father. A Father who we're told to pray to by Christ himself in Matthew when he said, Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. There is a real familial relationship 
when we're in the family of God with our Heavenly Father. Listen to Paul in Romans 8. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We're going to be getting more into this next week with the amazing doctrine of adoption. But for now, we can see how Paul can refer collectively to our Father since we are His children and we can address Him as Abba, which means Papa or Daddy, which is an Aramaic term that was used by children. It was the most intimate term a child could use to describe his father, thus emphasizing God's compassion, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his tenderness, his loving kindness as our Abba Father. Now we focus on the final phrase of verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please note that no mere man could be placed in the same sentence, the same proximity as God the Father and be called Lord. Only the God-man Jesus in this verse next to the Father and be called Lord. Scripture is saturated with confirmation that Jesus Christ is God as the Son of God, that He is co-eternal, co-equal with the Father, as evidenced right here in Ephesians 1. And we know from Paul that the source of our salvation is grace, the blessing of our salvation is peace, and both of these gifts are from both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. So this rounds out Paul's greeting to the Ephesians, showing it is by the order of the divine Godhead that we are granted grace and peace. Paul started this epistle from Paul the Apostle, who is the divine messenger, by the will of God, which is the divine decree, to the saints who are the divine people, who receive grace and peace by order of the divine Godhead. No wonder Paul has begun this epistle with such a spirit of praise and worship for these divine truths. Well, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has set the course for this epistle in just two verses. For the wonderful truths that are to follow as we ascend the foothills and the wonderful grand peaks of this, the loftiest of the prison epistles. We'll see next week and the weeks following as we've seen tonight, an active God, a merciful God, a gracious God, who in eternity past set forth to call out a new body, a bride, the bride of Christ for both Jew and Gentile that he would set his love upon by building something brand new. The church, the ecclesia, literally the called out ones. And Paul will reveal this mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament. They had no idea of this. That there is a new dispensation, a new stewardship of the grace of God toward a people redeemed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who have repented of their sins, who have put all their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So this is... Very good news for the weary, weary soul. And I say, if you've never repented and believed, do so now. And join us in this new body formed by God over the last 2,000 years. And you'll be united with us as a new follower of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You'll be united with us as a new saint who is faithful in Christ. You'll be united with us receiving grace and peace from your Father 
and our Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day. Now is the time. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we love your word. We love to hear these great truths, Lord, that we've heard tonight about the grace and peace, the will of God. We just pray, Lord, that we would continue to be faithful in you. We know you are active. You are controlling all of this. And we give you praise and glory for this time to honor you as we study your, the epistle from Paul. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.